This is Wayne McCullough, and welcome back to Simple Talk Radio. Coming at you from Dallas, Texas, and KPEX Studios with Kevin Eveline over there, my producer. Always good to see you, Wayne. Thank you. As I said, uh, it's beginning to feel more like home here. We've settled in over here on McKinney Avenue, which is a fabulous spot. Kevin does an outstanding job. People so love this spot. Yeah. yeah, they like this spot a lot better than the last one. <laughs> so we're, we're always happy to be here. And, you know, one thing I do and I've learned is to do things that I love, and it helps keep me in a happy place, and this is one of them. So today, as we always do, listeners, and I love to say welcome back because we actually have a pretty good following now, is we're going to cover the big five F's in life, and that is faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances, in that most of our guests cover all those subjects. The reality is, I think the Honorable Alan Clark, who I'm going to get to in just a minute, really, if, if you look at the arc of his life, covers all of those, and he speaks into all those. Faith would be... And I put faith at the beginning of my big five. People organize them however they would like, but I've just realized that if I don't have that bedrock... Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Family falls in place, friends, fitness. But you know, I think we have been set forth by God to try to align these things. So we're going to get into that. I've had, I believe we're probably 11 or 12 episodes in now, and this is probably the most significant guest I've had. Oh, from, thank I you know, for the compliment. And I know you're too humble. But, you know, very, very rarely do I get West Point graduates. Um, let's see here, Purple Heart winners, Bronze Stars, Air Medal, Combat Infantry's Badge, and some of it's been confirmed by the Senate twice, and some of it served our country honorably. And, you know, it's interesting, and, and I'll get into your bio shortly. I don't even know if you know this, Alan, but Vietnam was something that I was just intrigued with at a young age. And when I was about 17, um, I got my first book on Vietnam, and then proceeded to read probably 25 or 27 books on the subject over about a four-year period. Because I thought it was just such a unique time in the American landscape, as, as you'll comment on. So Alan Clark, as I said, is a West Point graduate, fascinating, uh, was deployed into Vietnam as a military intelligence officer. And during that, was in a combat mission and basically suffered... Um, very severe injuries, but ultimately ended up in the amputation of both of his legs, which as we sit here today, he deals with. But what I love about Alan is he's, it's, he has, continues to overcome. And that's something we want to leave our, our listeners with and even any veterans listening that you can come out of anything, right? You are, you are never too gone. So Alan is just a, a fabulous American, as I said, Silver Star, Gallantry in Action, a Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Air Medal, and Combat Infantry Badge, and the list goes on. And he's also authored three books, two of which I've read. I will admit I've not read the latest, but he's going to have another customer coming his way. And one thing I love is Alan wrote the first book back in 2007, when frankly even then PTSD and what we see from our soldiers today is not was not being talked about at a high level. Now, we're going to get into this, but I think the, it's um, 22 veterans a day take their life, and people can't fathom that, and th- that goes all the way from you know Vietnam vets all the way up to today, because so, I do want to touch on mental, mental health, because it's, it's somewhat of a scourge in, in our community. So, gosh, you've stood by politicians, you've stood by chaplains, you've stood in the military field, and so I'm just ecstatic to have you on. What we do here is often, you know, the genesis and the background of, of really, I would say, what, 
you know, got you to that point, maybe even what drove somebody like yourself to even want to be in the military. And then we, we can get to what I call the pivotal moment. And then we'll look at the backside of that. So maybe a little bit of the genesis and in, in your story up to Vietnam. Well, I was raised in an army family. My mm-hmm. father was from Fort Worth. Mother was from the Lower Rio Grande Valley. They met in Houston. And uh, dad went on active duty in August 1942, two months after I was born. So I was, which, I'm what you call an army brat. And, you know, brat does not mean that you're a bad kid. It means mm-hmm. that it's the old term British, British um, family members that, that accompanied the Brits with full units overseas. That's what brats really mean. People don't understand that. Uh, so I was on army posts for the first few years of my life, and I collected patches. All good army brats collect army patches. So I found one one time at age eight and didn't know what it was. Ended up being the West Point patch, and my dad told me what it was. He says they train officers for the Army. He started pointing out the different West Pointers around the Army post where we lived, and they were impressive guys to me. So I said, well, that's what I want to do. So, man, I had a tunnel vision on a goal in my life, and that's all that I ever concentrated on. I didn't consider any other college. Uh, I worked hard. I went to, uh, you know, all, always did my homework. I went to three years of wonderful prep schools, uh, all boys prep school, studied hard four or five hours a night, got myself into the academy and uh, had a great family. We moved around a lot. I mean, I was in about 11 schools in 11 years. So we moved a lot and uh, in Japan and Maryland and Virginia and Texas and, um, you know, in, in New Hampshire. So okay, went, so your dad was... Um, Army but, officer. Right, but was he deployed? No. You was know, he active? Was he deployed? Because that was what? It was World War II. War yeah. Uh, Wayne, he, he volunteered for overseas twice in world war ii they didn't take him so he accepted he always felt bad about that the fact is he did do do what he thought was right he went to the korean war toward the end of the war Mm -hmm. so he was deployed one time it was a 16-month tour in korea uh during that war so we were only separated for eight months when he went to japan in 1948 16 months then so out of 17 years or so of my life he was only gone for two that's years. A, that's a not too bad for, not yeah. too bad yeah. not too bad so anyway i grew up in army family always wanted to be in the military and i prepped for it and i got an, a nomination from a congressman in little rock arkansas and got appointed to the academy after 11th grade so uh, was you were you set on west point or did your dad tell you if you're going to go into the military then the academy an academy is the way to go or is that he, just- he, he didn't necessarily say that i i just gathered that i gleaned that you know because these sharp officers that Mm. i found and my mother played bridge with three of them on a troop ship going to japan in 1949 they were very impressive guys to me Mm -hmm. brand new second lieutenants you know so uh i didn't really i never considered another school another school would have been a and m corps that'd be about the only school i'd Mm -hmm. consider so i got admitted uh at age 17 youngest man in my class 740 cadets so i uh you know, I was always running scared. I was immature in my mind. And I, so what year was that when you got admitted? Or uh, 1959. Yeah, I'm class of 63. Um, 59. When was Korea over? Oh, 53. 50, okay, so oh, it was well past oh, that. Well so past we were on our way into Vietnam. Yeah, the stage and, you know, Vietnam. by the time we got out, we were junior officers. Vietnam was gearing up by yeah. 64, a year after we graduated. In fact, we already had guys come and give us lectures when we were cadets that uh, had been to Vietnam as advisors. But the big thing that happened my senior year was the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. Right, because it was all about the Soviet threat and the spread yeah. of, the, of the Red Sky. Yeah. They scared us about being graduated early. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> going on active duty, sending us down to Florida, you know, to, to fight the, the Cubans and, and the Russians who were in Cuba. Yeah. Okay. So would you like to talk a little bit about, because most people probably don't know, I'd be interested too, just your time at West Point, you know, what were those reformative years, obviously. Oh, yeah. Did, did it, and I know, I know the answer, I'm sure, but does anything really get you prepared for active duty? Active duty. Uh, or, or let me say combat. Uh, well, what gets you ready for active duty in combat is, is number one, a dedication to your country, mm-hmm. a dedication for our motto at West Point, duty, honor, country. I mean, knowing that you must perform your duty and you must uphold your personal honor and service to your country as a patriot. So those are the main things. Those are the things that are ingrained in us. Now, we have extensive military training mm-hmm. as cadets uh, every summer, tactical training, you know, the first couple of years, and then we're sent to a unit at the end of our second or third year for uh, uh, several weeks to train with a regular army unit. Then we have paratroop, you know, airborne training or ranger training. Um, and today they have their air mobile training, different things like that. Plus your branch school. So we're, we're well prepared technically mm-hmm. when we get out and we are sent to a, a troop unit immediately. So we serve at least a year after in 1950, uh, when the Korean war broke out, they sent young officers who had just gotten to their units in Japan immediately into the Korean War. They lost about 50 graduates from the class of 1950 because they sent them into combat as brand-new, fresh second lieutenant. So they all, I think they made a rule after that that you have to be on active duty for at least a year before you go to a combat unit. So all of us, you know, we, we, we knew by the time we graduated had our degree and diploma mm-hmm. and had all our training, had the comradeship, that we had to fulfill our obligation to our country. And that's part of why... Uh, I ended up in Vietnam, fulfilling an obligation to my country. Mm-hmm. Okay, so well then let's let's jump to that. Well, okay, you were not you were not married or anything yet. Oh yeah, upon- yeah. I was married immediately after graduation. Right after graduation. Yeah, okay. and I met a, a very wonderful, wonderful woman who was an SMU graduate. She was a Cap Alpha Theta at SMU, and she had not finished college yet. We got married uh, within about six months of mm-hmm. becoming. You know, knowing each other. I mean, it was kind of like me. I graduate. I have a degree. I have a job. Time to get a job. I mean, get a wife. You know, I got a job. Right. Time to get a wife. So, you know, I proposed. She accepted. Uh, within a couple of years, uh, the Army was not her thing. You know, she was used to the North Dallas uh, area, you know, Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. SMU, et cetera, um, Preston Road um, access, as I would call it. And uh, she wanted me to resign. So I was, um, I was devastated because this is all I ever wanted to do was be an Army officer for a 20- or 30-year career. So uh, to preserve my marriage, I told her I will resign my commission. Um, And I was a general's aide at Fort Hood, and one of the other generals, not the the division commander, but wanted to take me to Korea, uh, a one-star wanted to take me to Korea as a general's aide. So I had a chance to avoid Vietnam and then come back for a year, and then my resignation would be effective. I couldn't do that. Let's talk about duty, honor, country. I knew that I would feel I would not feel proud of myself if I went uh, if I went to Korea and then came back and avoided Vietnam. My duty on our country would not have been fulfilled. So I volunteered without telling my wife, and um, it was a big mistake. And that leads to uh, into the faith deal, which I want to talk about in a mm-hmm. minute. But anyway, I volunteered for Vietnam, went to Vietnam without telling her. Just took my order, say, "Oh, I've been ordered to Vietnam. I can't go to Korea as a general's aide." So you know, she's not going to. 
question that. Did, she didn't know enough to say, did you volunteer and not tell me mm -hmm. or anything? So I went, and then, you know, I had a very exciting time there. Um, uh, I had a really interesting assignment. You know, I was undercover, clandestine activities, running agents into Cambodia to get in intelligence information in the privileged sanctuary. Got wounded really badly in a mortar attack at Docto Special Forces Camp, my 11th month tour of duty. Um, lost both my legs, you know, one traumatically on the battlefield immediately in our camp, and the other one I kept for 10 days. But it leads to the faith deal. Now, because I got hurt so badly and came back, she was devastated, okay? So we, we raised a couple of daughters, wonderful daughters, and uh, but that she decided to divorce me after about 30 years of marriage. So one of the problems that we'd had all those years was that she harbored resentment to me about volunteering for Vietnam without telling her. Now, I have to say, as a as a Christian gentleman with more maturity than I had at age 23, for sure, that no one, that no gentleman nor wife, no either spouse, should ever make a major decision without talking to, explaining, and getting feedback from your spouse and praying together about it mm -hmm. and doing the wise thing that's good for you both and your family. Now, I wasn't wise enough at age 23 to do that, so that's a major mistake I had in my life. But uh, after about 25 years, just before she was going to divorce me, I went to a Bible study one night, and the pastor said, Are there any special problems that are bothering you? We went to the library in the church after the Bible study. And I said, yeah, my wife has never forgiven me for Vietnam, volunteering and then getting hurt as badly as I did and having to go to the amputee ward, 15 months in the hospital, et cetera. And he said, okay, we're going to pray something called the labors of the harvest, Wayne. Now, this is very, very important for people at any age as a Christian. We are given free will. So I could pray all I wanted to that my wife would make a decision not to divorce me. That would mean God would not intervene and make her change her mind directly and specifically. Don't divorce Alan because Alan doesn't want you to divorce her. So I could pray that for 10 years. That would not have worked. He said, we're going to pray something called the labors of the harvest concept. So what does that mean? He said, we're going to pray that she is going to hear something on the radio, watch something on TV, read something, or someone is going to talk to her and say, you know, you haven't forgiven Alan for volunteering for Vietnam, but you know, the Bible says that if you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. So I said, well, I'll try it. I'll try anything. So we prayed about it. Two weeks later, I'm in Durham, North Carolina. She's in Austin. She's on her way to divorce. She calls me up one night, two weeks later. I mean, I prayed it, not necessarily believing it would come come to, to, to pass. She called me and says, Alan, I must forgive you for volunteering for Vietnam. I said, why? I'm on the phone with her, you know. She says, I was watching a television show last night. I still remember the show, you know who the evangelist was on TBN. She says, the Bible says 18 times, you must forgive all others, you will not be forgiven. I must forgive you. Now you talk about a major faith message that I learned 25 years ago about prayer, number mm -hmm. one, this concept of labors of the harvest, and number three, forgiveness. And it taught me the lesson also that to keep my life straight, I need to forgive all others all the time, no matter whether I want to. Or not. I don't need to Harbor the resentment. That's another major thing I've learned in faith. And I've learned the second major thing. You've got to keep yourself clean and pure and keep your sins confessed all the time. Mm -hmm. Pos you know, big ones, little ones, whatever the case may be, keep yourself clean. And number three, forgive yourself for your stupids from the past. And I've had a lot of them. <laughs> That's basically my faith walk in a nutshell. Okay, so let me, because I know it was challenged, strengthened, 
Let's let's back up a little bit. So you're deployed to Vietnam, or yeah. you're volunteer. Yeah. Uh, you go into the military intelligence officer unit. You were not there long before you're injured, correct? Oh, no, I was there ten and a half months. Ten and a half of, months of a twelve month tour. So yeah. So I was so, I was almost finished with my tour. Oh, so, so it's, oh, yeah. okay. Twelve month tour. Right. So you were on. You were almost out. Yeah. In fact. We had an enemy unit coming into our area, a regular Army North Vietnamese battalion. Mm-hmm. You know, pith helmets, khakis, AK-47s. I mean, they were not Viet Cong with the white with the black pajamas. Mm-hmm. These were regular Army people. They ambushed two of our patrols within about five miles of our camp, killed two out of three Americans in one ambush, probably four out of four on the other one. I never got the full story because uh, it all happened about the same time as I was leaving. So my commanding officer, because I was undercover, I was a covert officer, mm-hmm. infantry brass, different name than my real name and so forth. Uh, my commanding officer, look, you're shut down. I'm picking you up June 17th, Saturday, 1967. I'm coming up from Saigon in an airplane and picking you up and getting you out of that area. I don't want you captured. Your, your mission is aborted anyway. So at 4.30 in the morning, I was wounded in the attack because I was the American on duty, mm-hmm. on the alert every two-hour shift in a special forces camp. And um, I was assigned to special forces. I wasn't a Green Beret with all the training and all that kind of stuff, but I was assigned to special forces. So that's how I was. I was four and a half hours from safety. And that was a mortar attack, correct? Yeah. Mortars and rockets, apparently. Right. And <clears throat> can you, just, just out of sheer curiosity... And I've watched plenty of the films, and what the tra- the traumatic effect at that moment is it? I, I just and I hate to even take you back there, but it's just an interesting. Is it just sheer chaos at that time? Well, you know, or are you are you I, cognizant of everything that happened? This happened fifty two and a half years right. ago. I still remember distinctly everything that I mean, happened. You can probably me. smell it still, right? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I have a a slide presentation I make. Mm-hmm. I show the camp. I show the, you know, I do a lot of talks on that, give my testimony mm-hmm. of faith, the mountain where the rockets came from, the high ground across the river, you know, the, the, a place that was hit, you know, like four feet from where I was wounded, a great big, you know, blast into a building and so forth, through the sandbags and all. I remember falling on my stomach, yelling out, oh, God, I'm dead. Oh, God, I'm dead. Help me. Oh, God, I'm dead. Medic heard me, came up out of the bunker, got knocked back down, put a shrapnel piece of shrapnel in his shoulder. Two other men brought me in. But see, I remember all that. And I, you know, I, I joke, try to joke about it because it's a real sensitive time of my life to, to talk about it. But I joke about uh, when you get wounded, you either call for two people, your mama or God. I decided to go straight to the top of the chain of command, go to God to help me, you know, and God did. You know, and the, the amazing thing about that, uh, I got taken into a bunker real quick, and this medic, Jimmy Hill, that I'm still in contact with, lives around Tampa, um, went under the barrage of fire to get morphine and plasma for me. Because when you lose a lot of blood, which I did, massive amount of blood, yeah. you have to get the liquid in your body replaced. That's plasma. And the morphine shots take the pain away. So I got morphine pretty quick. I don't remember any pain. I mean, I must have had horrendous pain immediately, but the memory has been wiped out. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember that. So I get into the bunker, and there was a guy, like if I'm sitting here in this, in this chair right now, a guy two feet away was was killed he had a mortar fin right in his head mm. so I, I remember that vi- visible memory vision mm-hmm. you know vision uh two feet away from me and uh we had not two men killed in the camp two that man plus another one just a few feet away and um 
eight others wounded out of 25 Americans. We had heavy, heavy casualties. So we were all medevaced out on choppers about, you know, hour and a half, two hours later. So I started my way across the Pacific. I was back in San Antonio at Brook Army Hospital in seven days. I had left leg off, right leg broken in five places. They took that off uh, in my 10 days after the attack. So I kept the right leg for, I mean, it wasn't any good. It's broken in five places. I never walked very good. Well, so they took both legs off. Man, it's, a, it's amazing. One, it reminds me of saying there's no, no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Well, I was a believer before then. You know, and yeah. still talking about faith, Wayne. Believership is head believership. You know, oh, Jesus is great, and let's sing Kumbaya, and let's go to church and have all our sermons and everything. But, you know, knowing that Jesus is real, and Jesus came to earth to, to give us a way f- for eternal life by believing in him and uh, trying to live a good, clean life, and knowing what we have to do and studying the Bible and knowing who he is, understanding the Trinity, and uh, all of this starts to get into your heart. So you, besides a head knowledge of Jesus the Christ, you know Jesus the Christ in your heart, and, you know, and that changes you. When you know that there is a real being that came to earth 2,000 years ago, which is what I eventually developed, a heart knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. that's the ch- turning point in my faith walk. You know, and, and thinking back to the, the the injury, the amount of things that had to go right for you not to die is amazing. Oh, yeah. Right? I oh, mean, no question about it. From, from where even just the mortar the rocket hit, I mean, I guess, what, 10 eight, feet eight, over, eight, you're eight, done? Eight, 18, no, 18 inches behind me. And it's and over. So, and, and so it hits, you know, I have a little bit of shrapnel in, in both thighs. Mm-hmm. I got a little bit on my hands. I don't know how it got on my hand. Maybe I fell really hard and hit some shrapnel. It, it went into my system. Um, but... The um, the actual wounds, you know, it's just one of those things that, that happened to me. I just it's hard to it's hard to describe it. I don't have any problem talking about it. Well, God wanted you here for a reason, apparently, right? Well, well, yeah. I mean, you know, I shouldn't. And that's not to say he didn't want oh, other oh, people here, but no, no. What I was about to say, Wayne, excuse me, is if it had been let's say twenty four inches, thirty four, thirty six inches away, then I'd have taken see a a, a a mortar round hits and it goes up in a sh- in a cone. Okay, so I was like, if the cone is, uh, the cone goes up, I'm 18 inches, so it hit, you know, Mm -hmm. stopped at my knees, basically. But if I'd been 30 inches away, I'd have taken midsection wounds, probably died, or a little further away, you know, a few more inches, chest injury, a few more inches, head injury. And I've had a a classmate with two other people, one rocket hit, took all three of them out, Mm -hmm. that example of one of my classmates. So... I was close enough to, to lose lose it just below the knee. Mm-hmm. Any further any further distance away from that specific round would have killed me. So I want to get into something because this is going to lead into the next, what I'd say, part of your life. So seven days to come back. Yeah. I mean, you have to begin to process my entire life is different now. Mm-hmm. And you may not be oh, processing I was, oh, that yet. I was yet, scared. Oh, I, was, I was scared. But it's, it would be hard... Almost, what am I going to do now, right? And and I know that's terrifying. So that would lead into, because it's important to both of us as mental health, I've had too many friends take their lives, frankly, for somebody my age. And what what does that next year look like, let's call it that? And how long were you in the hospital total? Okay, I was in the hospital 15 months total. I was put under 12 times during that 12, 15 months. Mm-hmm. I've had eight of the surgeries on my legs since then. 
um, I had very, very minimal uh, psychiatric contact with a psychiatrist at my bedside mm-hmm. during that eight months. I um, got off every three-hour morphine for pain after six weeks, so they put me on some other uh, pain medicine, Darvon or something, I think they called it back mm-hmm. then. And they didn't call it post-traumatic stress back then. I started to have a disorder because I was scared, which happens to people when either financially or uh, you know, th- there's abuse in the family or, or they suffer some disappointment. So civilians can have disappointments that cause post-traumatic stresses, mm-hmm. something that happens. They're in a car accident. person next to them gets killed. They're not, they're not hurt or they're just mildly hurt, but they lived. So those things started to well up in me. Anger, and I started with God, started at the top again, uh, angry at God, and then angry uh, that I got hurt and angry at the Army. I was... Uh, mad because I was controlled in the hospital environment. You know, I couldn't leave. I had to be there at 6 a.m. if I went to with my wife to our apartment that she got off post. I had to be back at 6 a.m. the next morning for doctor's call. You know, that, that made me mad. All right, so I was angry, and I was um, worried, really worried. But what's all I going to do? I'm a four-foot-six guy now. What mm. am I going to do with my life? i got to change my life. Uh, maybe I should go to law school, get an MBA, what am I going to do with my life? So all of these things after eight months caused me to have a breakdown, okay? So I went four days without sleep, the best I can remember it. And mm-hmm. I had a classic nervous breakdown, okay? A classic break in reality. So I went to a closed psychiatric ward for 14 weeks. And until about 2007, when my first book came out, I didn't tell very many people about it. And, and, and I've run for public office twice. I was always very concerned mm-hmm. about my opponent finding out that I'd been in a closed psychiatric ward and, you know, accusing me of being a loony guy or something because I couldn't, you know, handle the issues that I had to handle. I obviously, it was called external precipitating stress is the terminology for what happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't something that I'd had before because I've been through the academy and everything. But uh, I cracked, and so it was just horrible. Those 14 weeks were horrible. I had to see a psychiatrist uh, three times a week, heavy, heavy uh, pills and so forth, and I just slowly eased out and, you know, came to SMU to get an MBA uh, 15 months after I, I got wounded. Yeah, so it's interesting because all that time you're building up this anger and then you Oh, yeah, four at the end of eight months. But you probably weren't even even do, having much therapy at that time to get over it, right? I mean, uh, well, up to the eight months period, no. Right. No. I mean, that just there, wasn't a tool yeah, they used yeah, back then, just, right? Yeah, it just popped up all of a sudden. I mean, yeah. I, I went I went unstable just like within 48 hours or so, you know, four, four or five, within four or five days. I started getting signals. My wife started noticing yeah. that I was, you know, getting out of touch with reality, and the nurses started to notice that too. And then I had a break, and they sent me over to the closed psychiatric ward at Brook Army Hospital. But, you know, the beauty is in that weakness is your strength and the, your ability to help people and talk to it now. Well, right? I can. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, um, I've been there and done that. You yeah. know, um, you go to finances, you know, I've had some significant uh, major financial issues in the real estate market in the 1980s in Texas. Yeah. You know, and I was, a, I was a general partner in a limited partnership for investments in apartments. And, uh, you know, we went under. Period. Mm-hmm. So I've been there and done that for overcoming finances. I've overcome a 30-year divorce to that first wife. Mm-hmm. After 30 years of marriage, uh, you know, two two political losses, uh, the situation with my legs and everything. I mean, you know, I sit down and I talk to vets. I tell them what's happened to me, and I said, now what's your problem? 
You yeah. know, I go to youth groups, especially uh, athletic uh, uh, football teams, which I've done twice last spring, and I sit down on a on a chair and I unzip my legs. You know, I have this zipper on my trousers, so I unzip the leg. I take the leg off, lay it on the floor, put it back on, stand up. I says, "What's your problem today?" That's what I tell the guys. I mean, they're just speechless for my talk. Not a single guy. And you know, a couple couple times we had females. You know, the uh, soccer or uh, volleyball teams mm-hmm. that are in there too. Guys and gals. They don't say a word. They don't say a word. My whole talk. You know, you, you can hear a pin drop when I talk because they know. Hey, we better listen to this guy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure they do. Okay, so and you know what? That's got to be hard because you were set on being career military i suppose yeah oh yeah yeah and then that that's is, all i ever wanted to do that is literally and figuratively blown up um so that led because i just would be interested in your, your life path you ultimately were let out of the hospital and then had to begin starting all over what and are you how does that work in the military are you are you um you're at, let out of your contract or whatever it is. What is yeah, well, you're retired. You're, you're, you're retired from physical disability. Right. Me- medical medical retirement. And so you're, you're retired from the military. Yeah, and so you get, a, you get a certain amount of money, you know, compensation it's called. Retirement. And is this when you went in to work with the Pro family or was no, that? No, no. I, so I just, I'm trying to yeah, get to yeah, where, yeah. What, where did you go? I had an opportunity. When you're, when you're service-connected, disabled, wounds, mm-hmm. injury, sickness, whatever, you have a, a free college education. You had 40, I think they gave us 40 months free. So I came to SMU, got an MBA. So during the spring of 1970, one of my professors talked about a company in Dallas that was hiring Vietnam vets. So I went up to him after class and said, what company is that? Mm-hmm. He said, it's electronic data systems in town run by Ross Perot. Well, the previous December, you know, he'd, I think that it'd just been the previous December, he'd taken those four uh, POW wives mm-hmm. to the Paris peace talks and all. So he was a big deal. You know, he'd taken his company public at 168 PE, you know. <laughs> and I mean, he was a really big deal. I said, oh, well, good. So I called up a West Pointer friend of mine that I knew here in town. I said, do you know anybody at EDS? He said, yeah. Is Ross Perot good enough? I said, well, yeah, sure. So he sent a letter to him. So would you interview Alan Clark? Interviewed Ross Perot and a couple of his other people. And Ross said, I'd like for you to come in and be my personal financial assistant. I'll give you a training program for a year. I want you to take charge of all my uh, investments, which weren't as nearly as expansive 50 years ago as they ended up you know, this, this last year when he passed away, bless his heart, because of all he'd ever done for all of us. But he said, I'm going to teach you about real estate. I'm going to teach you about stocks and bonds. Teach you about uh, development. I'm going to teach you about uh, oil and gas, and so forth. And I want you to report directly to me for for these things. So, man, I was all ready to go. And then I was sent up to a, an audit of Francis I. Dupont. He wanted to buy Francis I. Dupont brokerage firm 50 years ago. Turned it into Walt Walston or some other company. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what. So I went there. Went up there for 11 days and pushed myself, Wayne. Uh, for an audit on three million dollars worth of fixed income securities that uh, he wanted me to that I had to audit for for the mm-hmm. for the operation and I pushed myself and I went without sleep I should have known better by then and uh, so I had to go to uh, I had to go to the hospital for a week and so my psychiatrist called Ross and I uh, went in for an exit interview with Ross and Ross said Alan I understand what you've been through is a massive job uh, massive effort you know and and your and your psychiatrist told you not. And my psychiatrist had told me, 
I didn't tell him that. I said, you know, get an eight to five job for a few years because you're going to be susceptible to post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress again. So Ross says, I will hold this job for you for a year, Alan. I will hold this job for you. Now, what job do you ever leave that your boss says, you got this job a year from now if you feel comfortable coming back? I never felt comfortable coming back. I couldn't do it. You know, I just, I was back on pills for about four or five years again. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't handle it anymore. So... Well, I appreciate that authenticity. I mean, it's just a good lesson that you've probably learned more and more. We have to take care of ourselves. I mean, you just have to. Yeah. It's interesting. The sleep deprivation is, that is a brutal thing. Oh, it's horrible. Horrible. You've got to have your sleep. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it time and time again. And And if you don't get it, you've got to be zonked out. That's all. If the doctor, if you can't sleep and you have to take something for it, do it. Yeah. Period. It just, yeah. The brain regenerates itself at that time. Okay, so then you, those five years, you, you did not go back to EDS. No. And what was the next big step? Well, I started— Because you, you, you began to enter the public arena. Yeah, right. You know, well, by not having the career goal of serving my country in the Army anymore— um, I still had a desire to serve yeah. and, and uh, desire to be a good citizen. And, and I, I, I candidly loved political life. I mm-hmm. loved meeting the people I did. I loved uh, being involved again. And so I got involved in politics very deeply. I mean, I became, you know, the front man for several campaigns here in Dallas in 1978. Um, I became kind of the, they call me the chairman of the, advisory committee or whatever for Bill Clements when he first ran for mm-hmm. governor, 1978. So that that led to getting on his staff when he became governor, you know, big come, first Republican governor in 100 years mm-hmm. in Texas, you know. So uh, that was my really big step. Uh, I was I was in a job down at uh, Republic Bank, and I was doing a good job for them. I made decent money you know, at the time and was fixed income guy. You know, I didn't, I, it was boring as all get out. Okay, so you were working for Republic and serving on Governor Clements. No, no, no. I worked at Republic for eight years. Okay. okay? But during that time, I spent a lot of time on politics. Right, yeah. You know, as a volunteer. Correct. All all sorts of campaigns around Mm -hmm. Dallas and so forth and across the state also. So because I had volunteered for Clements, I was the first uh, person that that Clements got hold of to say, I want you to be on my staff. I want you to help me organize my uh, transition office and uh, run my office when you come in, when I go into the governorship down in Austin, January of 1979. So I, I went down there before he was even uh, inaugurated mm-hmm. and uh, started serving on the transition office. Okay. And that was in the... 1978. And how long did you stay with Governor Clement? Two and a half years, because once again, I'd gotten involved with different things and a good friend of mine that I'd worked with in the disabled community in Austin had a very good friend that was high level level member of the kitchen cabinet of Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan. So when Ronald Reagan became president, my friend calls his father, who called got hold of Ronald Reagan. They uh, slotted me to be the number two guy at the at the Veterans Administration at the time before it became a cabinet. So I went up there and left the governor's staff, no job, no nothing, to go up there to be. Um, in transition to be able to be the number two guy getting ready for confirmation proceedings with the Senate, be the number two guy at the National VA. Mm-hmm. The number one guy was a jerk. I don't work for jerks. 
okay? I mean, I've quit jobs in the past because I don't get along with the top guy. I said, look, I'm too proud, and I don't want any more conflict in my life. If I don't have a good working relationship with the number one guy, which I didn't in this case, World War II guy, didn't appreciate Vietnam vets at all, thought we were a bunch of crybabies in a way with this post-traumatic stress stuff by, 80, uh, by 1981, um, I just said, I'm leaving. I come back. So I went, went in the oil business with a friend down in Austin, Texas, but still stayed involved in politics, mm-hmm. which led to the next politics. Governor Clements, you know, called me up to run for state treasurer of Texas in 1982. Bingo. Governor of Texas wants me to go do something. You know, my ego's hit, and I think being treasurer of the state of Texas would be cool. You know, use my financial background and so forth. So I ran against Ann Richards, got whipped just like he got whipped by Mark White in 1982. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had fun, traveled all over the state, made a bunch of new friends. So that was, uh, I've read that in your bio, and I remember that. So you ran for office. Yeah, first time. First right, time. first time. Uh, were you inclined to continue that path after that? A lot of people tried to make me inclined to be that, and my ego tended to make me want to incline mm-hmm. to do that. But the, the exact opportunity was not available. So for four years there, you know, it became a Democrat, Democrat state again. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a Republican governor for four years. And uh, the Republicans didn't have a whole lot of people in the Senate or the legislature in Texas. And I think maybe four congressmen, congressmen mm-hmm. in the state. Maybe, maybe I don't remember what the exact numbers were. It's a pretty long time ago. But... Um, so I just went in business, another kind of business, with a fr- another friend of mine who was a, a lawyer, uh, limited partnership, general partnership, syndications. I'd met a lot of people that had contributed to me when I ran for treasurer. Mm-hmm. So I had about a lot of people in the state that had money. So I started contacting them f- to raise the money for these syndications that I was in. In real estate. Real estate. So this, this is, we know where this is going, right? So this, <laughs> he's laughing. Unfortunately, right. yes. <laughs> and, and I was a kid at the time, and I've had my dad talk to me and, and other, I didn't really even appreciate till you know, a few years ago I really got educated how, what happened in oh, Texas. Oh, it was devastating. And how toxic it was. I mean, the whole state, everything in the state. You couldn't touch it. I mean, that's how these guys made a bunch of the RTC because they came in and bought a bunch of the debt. Exactly. And I know people that did. I yeah, and, the, that and the taxpayers paid for that. Right. So... That's tough, though. I mean, so to, our listeners probably are younger, too. So paint that picture, and then maybe a Reader's Digest version of what happened yeah. in well, Texas. Well, in Texas, we, when we built this business to buy existing apartments. The tax laws were of such a nature that it was advantageous to build to syndicate. So people started wanting the tax pennies from real estate, so they built apartments that did not— uh, the, the the demand was not there. They just overbuilt. So mm-hmm. there were apartments overbuilt all over the state. So our occupancy went down from like lower 90s down to high 70s. And so we used up our reserves. So and then 19, I think it was 1976, tax bill changed, and they took away a bunch of those bennies from real estate investments. So mm-hmm. um it was it was not misfeasance and it was not malfeasance in any way because I ran a really good operation. I had yeah. a smart lawyer as my partner. We did all the right things. We did nothing wrong, but uh, we we could not hold on because of the tax bill changes. It was external uh, external precipitating stress in business mm-hmm. because the tax bill changed. So uh, you got to be real careful in business. Ever building a business based upon taxes or based upon 
laws because mm-hmm. they could change if the if the administration changes, the policy changes. So that's a lesson to be learned for finances. What? But what? So the the financial crisis of Texas was based on. Was it banks first, or real estate first, or was it hand in hand? I, I don't remember. I don't. I, I wouldn't. I don't remember what all that was all about because we're talking about more than forty years right. ago. But you know, SNLs and there was there was corruption. There was corruption. There, at the there was corruption level, yeah. for sure. And uh, SNLs were were not making good loans, and the, the people were not really qualified to get the money that they got. Mm-hmm. And there was a corruption going on. There was overbuilding going on. And there were bad loans, heck of a lot of bad real estate loans being made. And all the major banks in Texas cratered. They had to be bought from out of state. For instance, Republic merged with First National. That became First Republic Bank of Texas. And then um, I think uh, NCNB or somebody bought them out of state, and then it became Bank of America. So Bank of America is the existing unit that had a couple of the major banks in Dallas, Texas. The First Republic failed, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they were bought out by— Because my dad had had some stock in my name that he gave me, and he said, you can just consider this wallpaper now. I actually framed it because I thought it was a good lesson on— Yeah. Right? There was a blue-chip Texas-based bank that— Well, I mean, who would have ever thought in the the, uh, uh, 70s that Republic Bank and First National, which were the— the core banks, the big banks in downtown Dallas that helped Dallas expand would ever, would ever have gone under. So, so but they got greedy for their loans. So let's talk to that, that stress. My sister and I have talked about this. There's all kinds of stress in the world, you know, your kids, even your health. But we've talked about that financial stress may be the worst yeah. when you're under siege financially. For whatever reason, yeah. it's difficult. Sure. Well, what I have learned in my now age 77, Wayne, mm-hmm. is that, that I thought about this just yesterday. The Lord didn't promise us a rose garden. You know, they talk about the Marine recruiting deal. We didn't promise you a rose garden to go in the Marines, as an example. And the, the world is not a rose garden by any stretch. You're going to be beset and besieged, what I call tactical spiritual warfare, on you individually to get at you, to tear you down, to, to bring stress into your life, to bring conflict into your life. So you got to keep yourself straight so that the demon demon spirits tactically cannot get at you. Then you're going to have the overall uh, strategic spiritual warfare, mm-hmm. which is the situational type of stuff, uh, the stuff that went on in the banking industry. You can be doing everything you can in the 80s as a financial man, a real estate inve- a real estate developer, builder, whatever the case may be, uh, an officer at SNL or a bank, whatever the case may be. And so then you've got the external precipitating stresses that are outside your control that, that, that tear, tear down your organization and your own position in that organization. But individually, you can be torn down because you start, you start to think you're really a big deal. And so you start to drink too much. You start to go out with the, maybe the guys at night and gamble, or you start fooling around with other women, and that's, those are big mistakes. You get away from God. You get away from living the way you're supposed to live. You start imposing stresses on your own life. you got to keep your life straight. you got to keep your marriage straight. you got to keep your kids straight. you got to keep your life straight. And that's the major lesson that a lot of people don't learn until it's too late, mm-hmm. and they crater. And that's where a lot of the stressors in life come because they don't keep their lives straight. A lot driven by ego, obviously. Of course, right? yeah. I'm a big. I'm a. I'm successful. I'm a big deal. I got a a a, 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 a cabin, you know, up in uh, Colorado to go skiing in the mm-hmm. winter. I got this uh, 
big boat, you know, on the local lake. And man, everything's just going great for me. So you need to start to get a little lazy mm-hmm. with your ethics and your morality. And that's what causes a lot of people trouble. And I'm, I've been aware of it through the years, you know, through the decades. Yeah, that's what me and a friend with the Simple Talk, and we have we have speaker series we do three or four a year. You know, we're trying to reach out to some of these men that you have the large house on Beverly and the White Range Rover and the good-looking white, but it's really painful if you have everything and you don't have anything, right? You have well, all If you don't things. have your spiritual, your spiritual connection, mm-hmm. nothing else matters, right. and nothing else will work. It, it, it might work. But but you know it works best if you have your spiritual connection and you keep your life straight. So uh, this will become evident quickly. But so you lost your legs, you've apparently lost money to significant level. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was you lost worth, a wife. I, I was. Oh, I had a, more than a million dollars net and, worth at one time. And so, what what is the so the relationship with God? What is a consistent? But here you are at seventy seven. Yeah. Still going. Okay. All right, number one, thoughts come into your mind, causes an emotion, which causes a choice of an action with a consequence. T-E-C-A-C. I teach that in my classes, okay? I think to myself back for Vietnam. My thought was, I need to be proud of myself. My emotion is, I don't want to have my classmates uh, look down on me not going to the war, coming to reunions in the future. So the choice is, I've got to satisfy my good feeling about myself for my future. And the action is going to Vietnam. The consequence is losing, losing my legs. That, that's the process. Okay, can, let me stop you there because that's kind of interesting. Do you think that you made the, you had the right thought process on volunteering to go to Vietnam? I had a choice of either doing what I thought was right it, just because it turned out wrong doesn't mean the decision wasn't right. right. Okay? Circumstances beyond my control took charge, and so I had bad consequences. But the decision, even if I had prayed with my wife and she had said, I don't want you to go, I still would have volunteered. You were going anyway. I was going. But I guess I was getting at, did part of you go so you could fit the box of the guy that went? Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, is that oh, fair? Sure. Yeah, part of it was my ego. Right, that's right. the I'm, same thing, and, uh, the, part of the problem why she wanted to divorce me after 30 years was I had spent so much time away from her and the children by being involved in politics. Right, all this other, yeah. Yeah, so why did I get involved in politics? Because I felt good about myself, and mm-hmm. I liked it. It was fun, and I met a lot of great people, and I felt I, I felt like I was doing something worthwhile mm-hmm. again because I didn't have anything but my job and going to church. That wasn't enough for me. I needed to have something else. So I devoted a lot of time to politics. We uprooted our family to go into the governor's staff, uprooted it again to uh, for me to go up to my political appointment with President George H.W. Bush for you know these two mm-hmm. uh, presidential appointments with senatorial confirmation. And so by the time that was over, she just said, I've had enough. You know, I've gone through the war, gone through the amputee ward. I've gone through all those years of politics. Mm-hmm. I've gone through moving out of Dallas twice. I'm not doing it again. You know, I just want to live in one neighborhood and, you know, go to the grocery store and, and see somebody in every aisle that I know. That's the kind of life she wanted. You know, I don't care. I just want to get my groceries bought and go home. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, we, it's, it's, but 
I'm so appreciative of your service, as are many others, right? I mean, sacrifices, that's a difficult thing, right? I mean... Well, this yeah. is no different than law enforcement. Right. You know, I mean, people do that can d- dedicate their life to law enforcement, to, to um, you know, being in, in the judicial system or, or being in public service, you know, as a civil servant, the ones that are really dedicated to it. It's not just a job. It's a passion. You know, that's always good in life, having a passion. Right. So it's, it's, it's an interesting balance. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to learn a little earlier, you know, through spiritual mentors. And because I love helping change the world. Mm-hmm. It's the reason I'm doing this right now. It's the reason I'm involved in Simple Talk and the other nonprofits. And this just, just last year, the spiritual mentor said, never, ever forget your ministry starts at home. Mm-hmm. If, and if it's that, so that, easy to help change work? the world. Oh, but, yeah. But world peace starts at home. You know? and, and, and it's hard when you're somebody like you and me in some ways that's geared towards wanting to yeah. go and, yeah. and do. Well, I remember down in Austin on the governor's staff, I got mad at, at my wife one time. It was mutual. You know, I'd done something stupid probably. So we, I leave, and the Lord put a car in front of me with a bumper sticker, World Peace Starts at Home. Bingo. Yeah. I went home that night. I realized that I was off base, and I needed to get my life straight at home. Mm-hmm. So, what a fascinating. Okay, so then you you have your appointments within the within the Clements administration. You run for office. So I ran for a, office again in '86. Oh, you did. Yeah, Carl Rove. I met Carl Rove. Filing <laughs> deadline day, 1986. Went and paid a thousand dollars. Ran for county judge of Travis County, one of the most liberal counties in the state of Texas, mm-hmm. and got waxed uh, in the job for. Uh, um, County judge of Travis County. Mm-hmm. Stupid mistake, you know. But Carl, Carl Rove says to me, oh, Alan, you can win that race. Oh, yeah, my ego, you know, you're sure I can win the race. I was, you know, having trouble with the business anyway by that time. Yeah, so that was through the 80s. And what, you know, I know you wrote, but but what was the career path from there? Yeah, I mean, well, you've served on multiple, you know, Bush gave you some appointments. Yeah, and- yeah. Well, I came back uh, after the two appointments at mm-hmm. the Department of Veterans Affairs, which I loved. You know, working with veterans around the country, uh, I worked very closely with the chaplains at all the hospitals and chaplains uh, group and so forth. And, and that's full time employment, right? Well, yeah. I, well, I was veterans affairs liaison mm-hmm. with the group with the veterans organizations. Ran the cemetery system, which at that time was one hundred fifteen cemetery, one hundred and fifteen cemeteries nationally. Nationally, mm-hmm. and I, I form I was the one that picked the site. Uh, to recommend to the secretary for the site down here at the Dallas-Fort Worth mm-hmm. National Cemetery. came back from that, and I, I couldn't get a job for about 15 months. I was basically unemployed. And then um, I went to work for the Department of Veterans Affairs down here at the local hospital. Mm-hmm. So I worked there for nine years and then uh, was single for nine years and then uh, married a woman that I had met uh, back in the 70s and 80s. She was married to another West Pointer that had died here in town. I knew him and I liked him and I'd met her and I'd just seen her socially during that nine year period. Mm-hmm. At the end of the nine year period, uh, we got together and uh, decided we wanted to be married. So we're in our 16th year of marriage now. She's a wonderful, she does women of the Bible programs in costume. Yeah. Yeah. I've churches. read quite a bit about it. And, and she, I've she, met she's her. amazing. She's amazing. She does a wonderful job. So the second chapter has been, Married to Linda, and I've been retired. I retired a year after we got married, so I've been retired since I was 62. Yeah, because it looks like you left Veterans Affairs North Texas in 
oh five yeah. or so. Yeah. Well, I you know I started writing that first book. Uh, well, yeah, that came out in oh seven. Yeah, oh seven, and that was Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. Okay, hold on, stop there. What was was that a difficult process to go back to, or were you f- no, far actually, enough from it that? Well, the people had had um, flattered me, as I would call it, in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. I'd sit down in living rooms with friends. I'd tell them little anecdotes from my mm-hmm. military experience. I had a very interesting non-combat time in Vietnam. I debriefed a Cambodian officer defector that was eventually murdered. And on the front page of New York Times mm-hmm. after I left country, I uh, lived in safe houses for three months with Cambodian anti-communist young men, put them on infiltration missions in triple canopy jungle to, to go into Cambodia unsuccessfully. And then I was at a very remote camp where I uh, worked to try to hire Montagnards, who are the natives of that area, the Aborigines mm-hmm. of that area, basically, to go into Cambodia. So I had a very interesting, exciting time as an Army officer in Vietnam. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a interesting time. So I started to tell people about that. I said, Alan, you ought to write a book about that. My goodness, you collect all those different stories you've talked about. You know, it, being the youngest man in your class at West Point, running for office twice, working for a governor, you know, et cetera. So they flattered me enough that I eventually said, okay, I'll write a book. So I wrote that one. But that didn't, you didn't start writing that till. Well, no, I had portions of it done through the years. I did a self-published edition of it in 86. Okay. But it wasn't nearly complete enough or professional enough for what I really wanted to produce, which I uh, got some help on professional writing uh, from a writer mm-hmm. that I contracted to help me. And I wrote that. And then I'd known so many veterans that I decided that I would write the uh, second book called Valor in Vietnam, which mm-hmm. is stories from 63 to 77, individual stories of all branches of the military over 14 years in all sections of the of the country to include an Army nurse and an Army contractor and what happened to them in Vietnam and the lessons of that. I, I was just when you were talking about that first book, it, it's pretty amazing what you've done, Alan. I mean, in what you've been involved with, right? I well, mean, what I've been involved with, let's put it that way. I don't know that I've well, okay. done anything. You right. know, Wayne, I haven't really done anything. I mean, you know, I'm 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 basically anonymous and a nun. I'm no celebrity or anything. I know a lot of people. I help a lot of people. Yesterday, I counseled a, a missionary going to a foreign country. I was on the phone for an hour with her. Today, somebody calls me up. They need somebody that's a service connected veteran for a for an issue, um, you know, legally. And so, you how, know. how often do you sit down, or do you at all, or do you point them in the right direction with veterans that are struggling? mentally and or or whatever emotionally 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 yeah yeah. i as often as one of them crosses my path i will spend time i will offer to spend time with them to have coffee to meet personally and i do that a lot and i do it on the phone a lot too you know what i always think is encouraging as simple as it is if somebody else on the other end of the phone or in front of you says i broke down and i'm still here i i disconnected i you know and it that's very uplifting to well, it's well, even uplifting to me sitting here thinking look you've looked into the abyss yet here you are there's not too many issues of life that i haven't faced right yeah you know, so no matter what somebody gives me a problem about well i've had i've been through something close to that let's talk about that right you know and especially the young guys i don't counsel women right. i don't i don't do that you know they have a lot of their own issues but i just counsel men right i don't even counsel i'm a mentor 
Right. Yeah. yeah. Counseling is a legal term. Well, I, your testimony, your, your testimony alone, and that's what we all have. Yeah. Right. So we're gonna we're we're doing okay on time. Um, I want to I want to reflect on one thing. It sounds like you had an intellectual connection with God, like we all do, but then you had an experience. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm and I'm, and a I'm series, with you. A series of experiences. Most people, until you connect at the heart level, you really don't have much. Yeah. Right. Maybe you're saved, and that was a path from the injury to when did that really begin to shift and do... Yeah, in, in 73 or 74, I went to a church here in town. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, it was Gene Getz's church, Fellowship Bible. Oh, I know Fellowship very yeah, and, uh, and Gene was talking about the great eternal struggle of all time is really God versus the devil, good versus evil. And I literally looked at the American flag in that, in that sanctuary that day, Wayne, and I said, you know, I almost gave my life for that flag and my dedication to that flag. But I said, I have not been dedicated to that cross up there mm-hmm. on the, in the sanctuary, on the altar. I've not been dedicated to that. And I started tearing, literally started tearing in that service. And I've told Gene about this a couple of times. Uh, and I said, I realized that I was following, I was not dedicated to the true commander-in-chief, and that's, that's Jesus the Christ and God the Father and God the Son. That was my turning point. And what a great revelation! And and for a, a year or two later, I got off all the all the pharmaceuticals. We all do it too. It might be money. It might be ego. Whatever, right? There's always a false god, and it's dangerous. Yeah. Well, that spiritual warfare. If I may, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but lead to my my recent efforts for the, the produce the third book mm-hmm. by understanding and recognizing and studying spiritual warfare and the things that have caused wars that have caused young men like me to go to war four years ago i began began an intense research project on what caused wars historically mm-hmm. the religious things you know back to the uh, protestant reformation 500 years ago the formation of the jesuits to counter that um all the thing between the, the Jewish bankers, the Rothschilds, the American Gentile bankers, you know, the Morgans, the Rockefeller uh, operation with uh, Standard Oil, etc. cetera, uh, media, lawyers, the John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles coming out of the Sullivan and Cromwell law firm uh, back in right around one, World War One. All of these things, the, the control of the media, controlled by what I call the elitists of the country. And I really started to get angry because here I was, a guy that suffered. And I haven't totally studied. I know a lot about Vietnam, but I haven't written about that yet. I stopped with the uh, Central American Wars with the current book called Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money. Mm-hmm. But I really put together spiritual warfare coming down to the tactical level coming into people in all these different arenas that I've just mentioned that that gets to them for cupidity, which is greed or power without the Lord, okay? And those those motivations pushing these people to make money, and they don't care if we've gone to wars in the past to make men like me go to war and suffer like I have, and all the dead people have been buried in the cemeteries. So I give lectures on this in my book, which is the third book out, and all three are on Amazon, by the way. I was just driven with my current passion with this time of my life to get this story out. I'd like to do one more, but I don't know if I'll have time. you got time. So so the book is addressing spiritual warfare as well as 
what led us to these yeah, wars? Yeah, I talk about my my uh, walk of faith. Mm-hmm. I talk about spiritual warfare. I call I, I I examined what's called the conspiracy theory of history and the new world order, which is a big thing, topical, mm-hmm. with a lot of people who say what they poo poo it and so forth. But I believe in it. And then the wars that we've had: Revolutionary War, Civil War, Spanish American, and Central American wars, and the different factors and the f- factions that have had something to do with getting us into our wars. And so I've analyzed those and written about it in this third book. I'm impressed you have time to do that, because it's a it's an epic-length book, right? <sighs> yeah, it's 475 pages. Yeah. But it's large print. Kevin, we're going to make him record it so we don't have to read it, because i got three kids at home. <laughs> Sounds uh, good. Um, so we were pressing him earlier to start putting these on tape. Uh it's the best way to read, man. We could get into spiritual warfare at some other time because I'd have you back on that. Derek Prince is a hero of mine. You've probably followed Oh, Prince. yeah. He's one of ours. I read, I read some of his writings this I love morning. Him. They I still love released him. his daily writing. I know it. And I so know. I get him. He has a radio show. Oh, I love it. He's genius. Oh, yes. He was ex-military as well. Of course. I think it was World War One, maybe. No, um, World War II. Great World history. War II. Yeah. World War II. Anyway. So, okay, good. You, you, so that brings us to this point. Your current work which is clearly the books, and people can go to Amazon and get those. What is your? What would you consider your work today? Well, I would speaking like to. I would like. To, yeah, I, I do a lot of uh, speaking games. Like you know, I just mentioned to you mm-hmm. before that I have four different venues of speeches the rest of this week. All mm-hmm. right, different different speeches, and I don't do it for money. I mean, if they want to give me an honorarium or whatever. Sell my books, fine. I, I don't, I'm not out there to try to make money off my public speaking. I donate my time for the purposes and the causes that I believe in. You know, I sell my books. Linda does her programs at churches with, in her costumes and so forth for women of the Bible. I mentor a lot of people. I stay busy. I don't know. You know, I, I need to get a regular job so I can have some free time. <laughs> so the you do not have a 501c or anything. Oh, so. yeah, I do. It's called oh, combat, combat Faith. So— yeah. Okay, that's good. I, I I think I looked on the website, but I wasn't aware yeah. that that was a oh, and was, listen, was a I would direct, I would direct. Excuse me. We have, I will direct people to that because I have a lot there about post traumatic stress. So you, for all the wars. On, what is your website? Combatfaith.com. And then when if they were to donate to the five hundred one three C, where does that go? Yeah, it would go to Combat Faith. I don't take anything out. No, of No, no, I realize that, but where does that money ultimately go? Well, you, uh, uh, to, to, uh, support our travel and our expenses. It's to support your, yeah, what you're doing. Yeah, our travel, our ministry, our lay ministry, and you know, travel and uh, you know, different things that, that a ministry has to. No, have. no, I think it's but great. We don't, we don't take any salary out of it right, or right. anything, and I don't solicit funds. I mean, you know, if I get an honorarium, it goes into combat faith. That's good to know. Yeah, it's really good to know. Yeah. You need to keep telling your story, which apparently you are. You're doing it four times this week, <laughs> so. What are you, and I, you know, we just don't have time, and you know, I'm probably going to have you back because we can get into current affairs. And but what, <laughs> Alan's rolling his eyes. Um, what? <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, I can't. I can't even get you started there yet. So, but what are you? Is there? What are you most passionate about? I mean, not your love for the Lord, but like right now that you're working on. Or is it you're just kind of all over? You're speaking to mental health. What? Well, I, I really would like to do another book, but um, it took so much time away from Linda to do this cur- late, latest one. Now, would that book pick up? Yeah, it, w- it would pick up um, Anglo-Boer War in South uh, Africa, mm-hmm. Russo-Japanese War in Manchuria, World War One, 
um, Bolshevik Revolution, trading with the enemy when American business people supported Nazi Germany mm -hmm. in the 30s, and it was used against us, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, and the Middle East. So that would be what I would cover in the second, in the in another book, in what I would call the Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money series. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's do a few things here at the end that I that I do on a consistent basis. With, with what would you tell yourself? What would you today tell the sixteen-year-old Alan Clark? Decide what you want to do in life and make sure it's undergirded spiritually, and go for it. Okay. And it sounds like you had part of that right, but not all of it. Yeah. I, I, well, I was a spiritual guy. I taught Sunday school at West Point. I believed in the Lord. Uh, I believed that I had eternal life, but I, I didn't have it in my heart. I had head knowledge mm -hmm. again. I didn't have really a mature. I was, a, I was in my church as a teenager three times a week. But you, like most men, one, what makes you a great soldier is the courage and the ego, but we we're all making ego decisions, which ultimately dangerous yeah right okay so are there any this is kind of interesting coming from a, from somebody that served in the military deeply and what are some daily habits that you do that you think are incredibly important or i would even say that help keep you at peace yeah i, I keep track of stuff you know I, I make notes uh i i try to be very civil and um uplifting people if mm -hmm. somebody does something for me i i try to be very diplomatic and uplifting to them in, in my email communications, which is mainly what it is today. Uh, if, if I do something that may be um, hurting somebody's feelings, I'm always very quick to try to see what I did wrong and mm -hmm. to try to make that right with a phone call or a message, whatever the case may be. I like to keep my, my life in daytight compartments straight as far as my relationships, my relationship with my Lord, relationship with my wife, relationship with my daughters and my grandchildren, and then the people that, that, I'm, that I'm impacting or have relationships with on a daily basis and activities or um, whatever, you know. Okay, so what, what does your routine look like? And I say routine, it's not, that, that makes it sound too sterile, but your daily walk with God. I know it's all day, but I'm, it's very important to me that I get about an hour of quiet time in the morning, yeah. which means I have to get up pretty early, but I get in the Word. Yeah, so well, you know, I have I have four or five versions of the Bible, and I've read them all. Through the, you know, so I, I don't, quote, know the Bible, but I know the Bible, mm -hmm. you know, and I know what I don't know, and I, uh, what I do know, I think I know relatively well. I do a lot of religious reading, you know, a lot of, uh, somebody tells about a new book, so I'll read it. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I, 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 I listen, I read a lot of news. I keep up with current events so I can do my speeches and keep mm -hmm. them current and so forth. And I, I make a lot of copies of stuff for the, a potential future book. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, to ask what you do on a daily basis and habits routine, I love the idea of, of staying current on relationships reaching out to others, paying it forward. Um, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of reading, which, because, I mean, you're incredibly sharp, and, and I think, obviously, it's incredibly good for your mind. So we're going to move on to what, what I begin to get to close to close, which is what I call the fast five or the finishing five. It can be a sentence. It can be a word. Just when you hear this word, what comes to mind? Okay? Faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and soul and body.
Okay. Family. And follow through with it. Follow through. Family. Love your family first and foremost outside of the Lord. Be loyal to them. Take care of them. Love them. Friends. Pay attention to friends. Take care of them just like you want them to take care of you. Develop and encourage friendships. Okay. Fitness. Stay in shape, you know. Exercise, you know, but it's not just what you eat. It's what you take in, what you read. Uh, Your diet is everything that comes into you, body, soul, and spirit. Mm -hmm. So it's not just exercise, but it's what you eat and what you take into your mind and into your spirit. Spiritual fitness, yeah. Yes. Finances. Pay your bills. Yeah. Don't go into debt. Yeah, yeah. These are wonderful words. It's always I say it every week. You know, we're an hour eight in. It feels like fifteen minutes. This is one, Kevin. I might have to have part two because this is um, we, we got a lot more to cover, especially when I get Alan into you know his his take on you know current wars because there's a lot at stake in this country. But Alan Clark, thank you so much, the Honorable Alan Clark. Um, I'm honorable unless I get a felony conviction. And you, I don't. You know what? I don't want to hop off on this because I want to give you the opportunity. You have tell us about your children a little bit because I know you're very proud of them. Yeah, I have one daughter that lives in Switzerland, married to a Swiss citizen. Uh-huh. She's a Harvard MBA. Uh-huh. I have another daughter that is um, a pharmaceutical sales rep with two children and grandkids. Two children. Oh, I'm excuse me. Yeah, yeah that, two that grandchildren. Daughter has two children. Okay. I would Good. like to finish on a on a humorous note. Go for it. I was originally five foot nine when I was wounded. The uh, doctor came to my bed and said, how tall do you want to be with your artificial legs? I said, six foot two. And he said, you'll walk better if you're shorter. I said, how short? He said, five eight, five seven. So I said, why'd you ask me? So I went to five eight from 70, 68 to 78. Went on Governor Clement's staff and went to um, five foot um, 11. Mm-hmm. Then I went on President Bush's, amongst several hundred appointees, to six foot one. Came back from uh, Washington and went to six two. So I tell kids when I do motivational talks, I said, this, there's two morals to this. Number one, never give up on your goals in life. And number two, grow in all your jobs. I love it. Well, Alan, I'd like to say stand tall, keep standing tall, and may God bless all that you pursue. <coughs>